Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 394. Today is Sunday, the 25th of October, 2020. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Amy Balliet. Amy's a successful entrepreneur and author of Killer Visual Strategies, Engage Any Audience, Improve Comprehension, and Get Amazing Results Using Visual Communication. In this conversation with Amy, we discuss her inspiring entrepreneurial journey, pivoting from SEO to infographics to killer visual strategies. We discuss the importance of context, image as part of personal branding, and the role of images in your marketing strategy. A great conversation. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please consider to drop in your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Amy Balliet, as I would definitely like to call you, lovely to have you on the show. Uh, you are a, a very successful entrepreneur, and the reason why I wanted to have you on my show was that you've written this book, Killer Visual Strategies, Engage Any Audience, Improve Comprehension, and Get Amazing Results Using Visual Communications. Amy, how would you like to describe yourself? Oh, man. Um, you know, what's interesting is I, I kind of describe myself as somebody who's just exceptionally passionate about visual storytelling and marketing. And that com- the combination of those two things is visual communication in so many ways. I, I took a long time to describe myself as an entrepreneur. And it's because um, I heard a lot of people call themselves entrepreneurs because they had maybe a side freelance gig or something like that. And it, it took about four years into running my company that I finally said, no, I'm an entrepreneur. But I, I had to go through four years of ups and downs and a, and a lot of hardships. And it had to be my full-time focus before I felt like I could say entrepreneur. So I've only really adopted that word probably in the past five years or so. Well, it, it's the, the, the thought that runs through my mind is imposter syndrome, where yes. you feel like you're an imposter and yet you're it. And it's mm-hmm. sort of at what point does one get the label? The the second one is is like being called an author. Mm-hmm. You, you've written one book, and then you you have to write beside your title, my name, comma author. Yep. And, whoa, that's a big word too. Or it can feel like that anyway. Uh, but it's it, you know it's 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 remarkable how you sort of feel you, you now own it. Do you remember what brought you to feeling like right? That's it. I'm in. Yes. I actually do. I do. It, it was a Niels Bohr quote that I, I heard. The quote is, um, and I'm going to paraphrase it here, um, an expert is a person who has made every mistake they possibly can in a very small field. And that makes them an expert. And so by the time I felt like I had made every possible mistake I could in the world of visual communication, and I had learned from those mistakes, and the same thing with business, by the time I felt like I'd made every mistake I could and I had learned from them and applied those lessons to, um, to the growth of my company or the growth of uh, a strategy for a client, it took all of that for me to finally say, okay, I'm an expert. And so it, it was hearing that quote that actually helped me get over my own imposter syndrome mm. and feel like this is, I shouldn't beat myself up for my mistakes. There are opportunities to grow and to learn and to become better and they have brought me on a path that gets me farther than other people who haven't made those mistakes yet. Mm-hmm. So it's allowed me to really 
hone my expertise in, in a few key areas. That's cool. So in, in your journey, Amy, you were used to be running or doing SEO. Yep. And back in 2010, you made a decision to change. Tell us about the pivot. Uh, I, I'm always fascinated to see how and why those, those moments where, you know, SEO is, is a very viable business. Yep. No, definitely. It's so interesting because I feel like, um, I, I feel like I'm kind of that typical millennial who every three or four years I was changing my career. Um, and it all culminated into killer, but I didn't realize it was culminating into that. Um, and so basically, you know, I was doing SEO and online marketing and, um, I had an old business partner where we were running a bunch of different websites and monetizing them in different ways. And in June of 2010, we had both quit our full-time jobs and focused our full-time attention on that company. So we had launched it in 2009, but it took a good year to really start making a whopping $4,000 a month, which was where we said, okay, it's making some money. Now, if we put full-time effort in, can we double or triple or quadruple this? Um, and so in my first few weeks being full-time, I started creating infographics for the SEO value. So that's actually what brought me into it was, was this idea that I could get backlinks from these infographics and I could have some cool, unique content on all of our websites. And in 2010, the bar for an infographic was very, very, very low. And so you could basically slap the word infographic on any piece of visual content and it would succeed. Um, and luckily I had people I trusted who gave me very good critiques because my first two infographics, despite the fact that they drove thousands of backlinks to our websites, are some of the worst infographics ever designed of all, all time. Um, and luckily I had people who were giving me great critiques and helping me learn more about what would work and what wouldn't. And what ended up happening was in August of 2010, um, my old business partner said, I thought of a really co cool name last night, Killer Infographics, and the domain is available. Let's buy it and let's just make it a directory. Let's make it a website that is a directory of infographic companies and a website where people could submit their infographics and we can review them. Well, this led to us getting thousands of submissions that we would have to sift through, but we started to recognize patterns. We started to identify what's working and what's not and started to write very thorough reviews on all of these designs as well as tips on how to fix them. And actually by um, the end of September of that same year, so it was only a month later, people were getting a little offended at our reviews and yeah. said to us, if you can do better, design our infographics That's for it. us. And you, they exactly. laid down the gauntlet and then you rose to the challenge. Well, hell exactly. yeah, I'm not just a critique, I can do my own, which you'll get to critique. Exactly, exactly, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. So in our first quarter, we did 14 infographics. In our fourth month, so the second quarter of doing this, um, Q1 of 2011, 40 infographic orders. And that was really where it took off. I started focusing on killer and growing killer. Um, my old business partner focused on the other websites and we said, let's see what wins in the next six months. Six months later, killer was the clear winner. And then we started adding more services. We started adding motion graphics and interactive content, sold all of the websites that we had for not much money at all, <laughs> and really just bootstrapped killer. Um, and 
really within two years, we were doing far more than infographics, but we kept the name for eight years because it was the name that everybody that resonated with a lot of people and that people knew um, in the marketplace. And so we kept the name until um, 2019, we changed it to Killer Visual Strategies. And that was also when my, my publisher said, well, we wanna use the exact same name for your book. So hence the book title, Killer Visual Strategies as well. Makes great sense. There, there are so many questions that I have around this. One of them is the state of infographics today, 2020. You've mm-hmm. done 10 years of doing infographics. Your 2010 one, you're not proud of, but I'm sure it was good because it wouldn't have gotten so many links if it was so bad as you say. Um, where are we today? But you know, what, what, what are, how do you even qualify the state yeah. of infographics today? Oh, that's, that's a fantastic question. I mean, it's so interesting because I thought that it was going to be kind of a trend that died out. And instead, there's just such a big, ferocious demand for visual content out there. And the infographic offers a really great way to deliver complex information in a package that engages audiences and hooks them and gets them excited. So we're in a world where actually the the demand for infographics is higher than it was in 2010. But I will say of the thousands and thousands of infographics released every day, a very small percentage succeed and cut through the noise. And, And the reason is because there's such a low bar that still exists. When you think about all of these that, that, that are released, it, a lot of them are very low quality in design. So people look at those and think, oh, well, that's the bar I have to hit. And they don't realize that you actually have to go way above that to stand out from the crowd. You shouldn't be using any stock imagery in an infographic, for instance. Whether it's stock illustrations or stock photography, you shouldn't be using that. A quality infographic is all custom illustration and very little text. But a lot of infographics released today still are a mishmash of illustration styles with paragraphs of text throughout. And that's because most infographics are made on DIY tools. They're made by people who don't necessarily have the, the formal training in design. They don't understand typography and layout. They can't illustrate themselves. And so they're reliant on these DIY tools to kind of give them a foundation. And they'll spend hours upon hours designing something. And the more time you put into something, the more of your own, the more your perception of the quality of it changes. Mm -hmm. And you start to realize I've invested all this time. This is a real quality piece of content as a result. And what ends up happening is it fails in the marketplace because it's actually low quality. And the person who designed it, the brand or service might say, oh, infographics just don't work for me. Instead of realizing you've kind of taken a, you're trying to, let's say you're trying to travel from point A to point B. You've chosen to travel in a real beater of a car instead of a, you know, an Escalade or something like that, instead of just a, a perfect vehicle that can get you from A to B, you're delivering a junker. You're delivering um, mm. just un, unfortunately low quality content. So when we look at infographics today, that's one of the biggest problems. They still feel spammy and they still feel low quality if they're not designed properly and the right amount of time isn't put into them. 
Yeah, some of the, the way I see some of these infographics is I feel like I'm, I'm about to be manipulated. That's the feeling I sometimes get. And I'm mm -hmm. like, all right, what, how are they going to you know, beat me up and just you know, string me along with their narrative? I was wondering, in terms of categories of, of demands, mm -hmm. for example, do politicians ever get into using infographics? Because the idea is presumably to present data info mm -hmm. uh, in, a, in a way that people quickly get it. So yep. um, are there, is, do politicians use it? Are there other areas that might be using infographics that you might not have expected in the past? Yeah, definitely. Um, so politicians use them, but they don't use them enough. I will say that. I, I think that it's actually a huge lost opportunity in, in politics specifically, but the government uses them uh. consistently. In fact, one of our biggest clients is actually the UN. The UN is coming to us quite often for infographics and motion graphics. Um, I remember the first time we started working with the Nuclear Threat Initiative um, here in, in, um, in the US, they came to us wanting kind of a gamified interactive experience to really show um, a, a set of very complex information to Congress. So we often get hired by different government entities to actually dumb things down for politicians, as opposed to politicians hiring us to make things easier to digest and understand for their constituents. It's instead us trying to create content that helps politicians understand why a different government agency might have expectations um, or, or need, need a grant or want them to vote a certain way. Um, what's really funny to me is one of, the, one of the first projects we ever did for the Nuclear Threat Initiative was an animated video about a, how a pandemic can spread around the world if we don't put the right precautions in place here in the States. And we made that in 2017. And I go back and watch that video now, knowing that the, the steps weren't necessarily taken at, to the protocols of the video we put together. I watched that video and everything that was predicted in that animated video is exactly where we are right now. So it's yeah. just such an interesting thing how all of these different types of visual communication, whether they are animated visual communication or static, um, they're there to help you understand a very complex topic and they can be very beneficial in government, but they're only beneficial if the correct audience is watching them and taking mm -hmm. them seriously. I want to dig in on one other point, Amy, which you mentioned about stock, which is stock images, which you talk a lot about in your book about don't use mm -hmm. stock images that you know, the pros, you only use original content. And so every once in a while, I, uh, I, you know, I've, I certainly have taken my iPhone out and, and gone around taking shots of Paris where I'm, where I'm now where we're recording this or, or the like. And yet I see when you go, because the issue for stock for me is that it seems you can sort of detect stock. It's like BS mm -hmm. spray. You got like a stock image spray. Yep. However, when when I look at sites like Pixabay mm -hmm. or the opportunities with Creative Commons on Google Image, mm -hmm. there's such an array of uh, and and a great span of really crap to very good images. Yes. I, I feel like we're, it's harder now to determine whether it's genuinely stock or not. Yes. I, I agree with you on that. It, it is harder to determine that. And that's, 
not a bad thing. If it's hard for you to determine if it's stock or not, it's probably a good image to use. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the, the stock imagery that feels posed, the stock mm-hmm. imagery that basically when you think about stock imagery, we have this world of, of creative visual um, or pardon me, visual digital is the word I'm trying to use creative digital natives. The, these, these consumers who grew up with, smartphones being the norm, grew up with the internet. And honestly, we live in a world where we are all professional photographers as a result, because we have all the photo filters at our at our disposal. And so really what you have to think about if you are a brand or service trying to sell something to an end audience, you have to consider delivering content that they can't create themselves. And when you just buy a stock image and you put text on it, your end audience is going to get offended by that. They're going to feel like they weren't worth the time to earn their attention. And so when I say avoid the stigma of stock, what I mean is you can take a stock image and elevate it. You can um, adjust the background in it so that it's completely different than something your competitor can grab and use. Um, You can add different filters to it to really make it feel more modern and original because everything in Instagram right now is all filtered, for instance. Um, Or you can use a site like Unsplash. I always suggest Unsplash if you have to use stock imagery because Unsplash licenses much, most of their photos from Instagram photographers. So you know that the photos are candid. They're very authentic in the look and feel. Um, And so it's really just about meeting your audience with the same authenticity that they're connecting with their friends and and colleagues on throughout all of the different social channels that exist. Probably because of my literary roots and and certainly my uh, study of deconstruction, I I thoroughly enjoyed your take on context. You have a chapter that says always, basically always think about context it's a con when there's too much text. Um, tell us, what do you, what did you mean? What do you mean by, by that expression? Yeah, definitely. Um, so today's audiences are reading on average 20% of the text put in front of them and nothing more. One of the reasons we have, honestly, the political division that we have around the world and in the U.S., I'm, uh, we had the world watching the U.S. noticing quite a lot of political division is because we've become a headline culture. We're a culture that reads a short headline and takes that as fact, especially if there's an image associated to the headline that that collaborates with that headline, that validates it. And, And so we're skimming everything. And ultimately, if you try to connect with your audience with a paragraph of text or more, they aren't going to pay attention to that because we're inundated with information from all different angles and visual information gets to the brain 60,000 times faster than any other form of communication that exists. If you're relying on a paragraph of text to get your message across to the audience, you have to accept the fact that in the time it takes them to read that paragraph, they've already looked at every visual associated to it and come to their own conclusions and form their own assumptions. So you have to put more energy into the visual content that you're producing because that's the story that you're telling is through visuals. The text, if it hooks somebody, they'll dive in and read the text. But 
the way we as consumers take in information today is we look at a headline, make sure a picture validates the headline, and then we might look at the next headline and a picture and a headline and a picture and so on. If all of those things resonate with us and we feel like we want to dive deeper, then we will read. But only if we've first gone through all of this visual content first. If you deliver a wall of text as your first form of information delivery, you're intimidating your audience. Your audience is gonna look for something far more entertaining because it's honestly the path of least resistance. If you think about that phrase, the path of least resistance, it comes from brain science. It, the concept is we have neurological pathways that we use to process information. Well, our shortest neurological pathway that exists is actually our ability to process visual information. So we're naturally inclined to take the path of least resistance. And if we're in a world where there's all of this content around us, we're going to be attracted to the content that is the easiest to digest and consume. So if you are trying to engage, engage an audience, it is a con to use too much text because you won't engage them. You'll lose them too fast. So swooping back mm -hmm. to your life in SEO, mm -hmm. turns out that images are harder to index. Yes. So when you go into a Pixabay or Unsplash and you say, I want an image of a, a happy child. Mm -hmm. So you type in happy space child and up pop a whole number of choices, which is what everybody would be typing in to get those same images. One of the things that I like to do is to, to find images that are unorthodoxly tagged, which means that if I were to do an ad for, with a happy child, so to speak, if you will, I mean, I would, or, or maybe a much more abstract concept, I'm more likely to come up with a different take to your comment before. Yet, when you're talking about infographics and the one that was backlinked so often, uh, mm -hmm. and you have images that you're presenting in a mode of marketing, whether it's on an e-commerce site, you know, need to have red and you need fuchsia colored dress. And so you need to tag the image with all the different colors. Otherwise, you know, people have different perceptions of color and they won't get the dress that they're mm -hmm. looking for on an e-commerce site. So talk us through that type of text and, and how do you successfully, you know, drive your images because text still is the only thing that Google generally searches for. Yeah. And, and Google is evolving. They're working really hard to um, use their AI actually to be able to identify images, to be able to identify what is on that image and even determine whether or not it's a quality image or if it is either used everywhere and therefore it kind of reduces the quality because it lacks originality um, or maybe it's kind of a jumbled together mess of something they're they're trying to get ai to figure that out mm -hmm. um, until ai figures that out google does actually um, pay people to work remotely and visit sites and grade those sites based on this idea of what google calls eat expertise, authority, and trustworthiness. So there's a little bit of a subjectiveness that's playing in right now. Um, but if you're trying to optimize your site yet still speak visually to your end audience, the thing you need to know is when somebody lands on a site, 99% of people look for a video first. 
So that's their first form of visual information that they look for because a video means they don't have to sift through all of the text-based content of the site to find what's relevant to them. They're hoping an explainer video will give them that 40,000 foot view and give them at least enough context to know, is this the right service for me? Is this the right brand to be working with? An e-commerce site, for instance, sees far more success if they have product videos because people are going to watch those product videos first. Now, when you have a video like that, you can choose to take the script of the video and put that script into a blog post. That way you're gaining some SEO, some SEO value from that. Um, now, the second thing that people look for is visuals. So that they start to look for any type of visual clues that will tell them whether or not this is the right product, brand, or service for them. The third thing that they'll look for is headlines. So what you have to do as you're thinking about optimizing is we're not saying take all the text off of your website. What we're really saying is give people, give people bite-sized chunkable pieces of visual information on your site that gives them that high level view that they can read or pardon me, that they can look at and take in before they do any reading. You have to give them some path that's not just feeding them information through text. The other thing to consider is you have to attract them to your website in the first place. And that's really where visual content comes in. Visual content is really about bringing people to the top of the funnel. Once they're in the top of that conversion funnel, they're willing to read more than they are if they haven't even jumped in that funnel to begin with. So when they're in the middle of the funnel, you can probably go more 50-50, 50% text, 50% visuals. And at the very bottom of the funnel, you can be really text heavy because now you've hooked that audience more. It's like a book. We still judge books by their cover. And the fact is, is that cover is what determines whether or not we're going to crack open the book. When we crack open the book, we all often flip through the pages and look at the chapter titles. And that tells us, is this relevant to me? And then we might read the back of the book jacket. And then we might read a couple of pages. So it's that same concept. We're just trying to kind of identify all of these ways to get your audience to keep bringing their guard down so that they're more open to taking the time to read about your content or read about your service or product. So the text on a site, that doesn't have to go away. But the text in social media and channels like that, that's where you need to really have as little text as possible and be trying to take people into your site where they will dive in and, and read more at that point. Great stuff, Amy. I, naturally, since I've written a few books, I, I, I wanted to talk about the actual writing of, of your book. Mm -hmm. and, and at a meta level, how being a visual person writing a book could have seemed a little ironic. Yep. Tell us, uh, in uh, your experience of writing the book, what was the biggest learning that you had or took away from the experience of writing the book with your editor and or you know the research you did, the people who are helping you, whatever? What did you come away with? Honestly, one of the biggest things I came away with was exactly what you were saying, that constant irony. As I'm writing this book every single day, I just kept thinking to myself, this is the weirdest thing that I am writing a minimum of 40,000 words because that's, that's the requirement. So writing a minimum of 40,000 words to tell people to use less words is <laughs> so ironic. Yet at the same time, I had, oh my gosh, so much fun writing that book. 
it was such a blast that one of the things I also realized was I love this and I want to write 10 more books. And so as much as I love visual storytelling, and I do wholeheartedly believe that visual storytelling and visual communication can impact exceptionally positive change in the world if used right. Um, And I do believe that it's used wrong in many ways right now. And we're seeing it impact action all across the world. Um, As much as I love that, I don't think that the written word is dead by any means. I just think that it takes a lot more effort to get people to take the time to dive into a book. But, oh my gosh, the biggest lesson was I want to do more of this. I want to write more books, but I want to write more books in the ways I wrote this one, where there's so much visual content throughout the book, where it's not just a bunch of text, it's text. Now here's all the visuals that validate this text and help explain it. And I, I honestly want to write a book that's multimedia, um, an ebook that has videos throughout, or a, a book where you can kind of dive in and, and get QR codes that take you to videos that get you even more information. So I want to see if I can add augmented reality to a book too. Uh, so that's what I'm thinking when it comes to books. They have all of this opportunity to be more media rich than they are right now. That and sounds, it's exciting. Yeah, it sounds fun. You, in your book, you know, we talking about images. Uh, an image is worth a thousand words and you say one minute of video is worth 1.8 million words. I was mm-hmm. wondering about how you used images and or video in the promotion of the book and what lessons you've learned that I can pick up or any other aspiring authors uh, can pick up and tricks of the trade. Because I mean, the other thing I'm thinking about is the little uh, icon, Gravicon or whatever of the little book you have on Amazon and, and how that's a really relevant book by the cover kind of element, even though it's mm-hmm. tiny. So you have to anticipate the design of a tiny little you know, one inch by one and a half inches for American language. I'm using mm-hmm. seven centimeters. Um, <laughs> and uh, that little book cover and then the big book cover in the bookstores and, and so on. Yeah. Um, honestly, the book cover especially was something where we went back and forth on that for a while. Um, we did probably 10 different book covers to identify what was going to be the best as a small thumbnail because that is really the hardest part is designing for such a tiny thumbnail. Um, so that was one where we, we learned a lot of lessons and we took that artwork and used the artwork that we didn't use for the book cover and used it to create a bunch of different promo pieces Boy, as good. well. Um, the other thing we learned in the process was um, the promo pieces that had a picture of me next to the book succeeded far more than the ones that just showed the book cover. There's something and that's because in the audio, they don't see how attractive you are, but is that, is it, what is, what is the, how, can you dissect why that's the case? First of all, I appreciate that. Great compliment. It's going to fuel me for the rest of the year. Excellent. Um, <laughs> but um, it's really because it adds authenticity to it. It shows that there is a true expert behind the book because oftentimes so many people are self publishing right now that you're not always certain of the, um, of the quality of the content, but there's also so many books out there right now that are um, kind of shared content books where you might have 20 or 30 different authors, one person authoring each chapter. And so to bring more authority to the book and some authenticity to it, we made sure that we had 
photos of me with the book and holy cow, those, those really skyrocketed even more. Um, we've also really focused on um, any of the podcast interviews that I'm doing, like this podcast, for instance, anything like that related to the book. When the podcasts come out, we're use, utilizing visual communicate, or pardon me, the idea of bite-sized visual content and grabbing small sound bites along with video and sharing that on LinkedIn and on Facebook. So you maybe have a two minute piece where you can get a great snippet of information and that gets people wanting to listen to the whole podcast interview. Um, the other thing we're, we're playing around with is um, the idea of Instagram stories and sharing the eight rules of visual communication over eight very high level Instagram stories. They don't go into the same amount of depth as the book does, sure. but they give you enough of a high level view to know that, hey, if this resonates with you, this is one nugget of information, get the book because you're gonna get so much more information from that. So those are just some of the strategies that we're, we're using. That's same. brilliant. And that's the I, beginning. I, I feel like I'm gonna be doing much better with my new one. Um, in, in the realm of last questions, because uh, time is what it is, you've been leading this organization. Um, as you told me before we started recording, there was an acquisition and, and something that I always pay attention to is purpose. Mm -hmm. And, and in my experience, Amy, agencies might talk about it, but rarely do it. And mm -hmm. in the end of the day, an agency is beholden to the clients that they are, who are prepared to say, I'm going to pay you to do my thing. And usually people just say, yes, how high can I jump? That's, that's sort of the life of consultants and agencies. And, 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 and so goes the brand of the agency. You write mm -hmm. in your book uh, towards the end that you said that you are a team that you're united by creating high visual, high quality visual media and a sense of duty to always do what's right. Yes. I would love for you to explain to us how you identified what's right and how it became a shared concept throughout your team. Definitely. There are a couple of ways we've identified what's right. Um, first, we live by a core set of values on the team. Those values spell out the word killer. It's keep learning, inspire others, lead by example, love what we do, embrace change and respect. So we will gauge every project against those values to see if the project really lives by those values. Um, and we have turned away projects where we realize this is gonna mislead audiences. Therefore, it is not going to lead by example. Therefore, we don't think this is the right thing to put our name behind. Um, we have hired and fired not just employees, but clients by our values. So our values play a huge role in what we do. Um, but there's also a concept of, you know, just considering the core things that could offend people, politics, religion, um, sex. Yeah, exactly. And so we take those things into consideration. And if a project comes across our plate that could jump into one of those categories, we bring it to our entire team and say, this is the project. How do we feel as a team about this? So for instance, when um, Marlboro wanted to hire us to do creative content work for them, we talked to the team and we just decided, you know what, we don't want to do any content that is going to help fund, fund an industry that is selling something that people under 18 are grabbing and smoking and 
and um, getting addicted to. Gives, um, gives new meaning to the word killer, I suspect. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, we've just always been very careful about those things. And, you know, you asked me earlier about politicians. We have had politicians come our way asking us for work. And we have, on a case-by-case basis, decided, is this political work that is going to help the common good or is this political work that is only going to serve a small, a small few? And they might not, if, if, if it's an underprivileged small few, then we might still consider it, of course. But if it's serving a small few for an agenda that, that doesn't forward the positivity of our society as a whole, then we're not going to jump in and do it. And then one other big thing is um, we learned early on that we could donate some of our services and, and let our services help nonprofits that could not afford our work. And so over time, we've donated at this point about $5 million in services to nonprofits in need. Right now we're, down, we're donating our services to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund um, out in the States to um, help ensure that they're getting voter information out there to help, to help fight against voter suppression. So we're really doing what we can on our side to lend our services to the um, just the the areas that we think are really important to help heal um, because we see the divisiveness in the country and in the world. And we think that visual content can help people align, can show people where they where they intersect instead of where where they diverge. Um, and so we're finding that the um, NAACP wants to do the exact same thing, and we're really excited to be helping them and donating our services to them. Sweet. Yeah. Amy, thanks for coming on the show. Give us an Definitely. idea how someone can, of course, best get your book, wherever the margin is best, the uh, accessibility also. And uh, how can people contact you and or follow you? Definitely. Um, you can contact me with ease on LinkedIn at Amy Balliet. You can um, also get me on Twitter at Amy Balliet. Um, it's Balliet as in be like and boy, A-L-L-I-E-T-T. Um, and then you can buy the book on Amazon, Killer Visual Strategies. And please, if you buy it, definitely, um, I would love a review. I would love to hear your input on it. And I've had a lot of people who buy it reach out to me on LinkedIn with some questions about it um, and telling me their thoughts. Please do that. I, I will respond to anyone and answer any questions you might have. Fabulous. Many thanks, Amy. Keep safe. Uh, keep on your jolly uh, mission, which is a, a beautiful one. And I love you connect. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. It was great being on the show. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
Hello, this is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. 
our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.